one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Radio Westeros, episode 63, The Winds of Winter Primer, part 9, Marine. and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me, as always, is Yogboy. Hello there, everyone, and thanks so much for being here. In today's episode, we're going to continue our The Winds of Winter Primer series with an in-depth look at the city of Marine. Last time, we brought you a recap and analysis of all the action in Slaver's Bay, everything going on outside the walls of the city as the Yunkish coalition leads a siege and a number of other forces make their way to the region. And this time, we're going to go inside the walls of Marine to recap everything that's been going on there since Danny departed Dasnak's pit on Drogon's back, from the culmination of Quentin Martell's grand adventure to everything that happens when Barristan Selmy gains a point of view and becomes a reluctant political player. We'll also take some time to analyse a couple of key mysteries from A Dance with Dragons, the identity of the harpy, and the identity of the person who poisoned the locusts. Are they one and the same person? Was Danny even the target of the poison insects? What is the agenda of the harpy if such a person even exists? And finally, we'll make some predictions about the outcome of the Battle of Fire and what might be happening inside the city as the battle plays out, as well as its aftermath. But before we begin, as always, we want to shout out our patrons. Many thanks go to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Daniel, Jolai the Three-Eyed Bro, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Peppernix, Maltude, John Wagarian, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, and Mr. J, the Red Shirt in Black, and Chris B, the Song of Ice. So thanks so much to all of our patrons, and if you enjoy this episode and this series, please consider being a patron yourselves, and obtain perks such as shout-outs, early access to ad-free episodes, and now an invite to our Discord forum. Look for Radio Westeros at patreon.com. And now, let's get started with The Winds of Winter Primer, Part 9, Marine. The dragon has three heads. My marriage need not be the end of all your hopes. I know why you're here. 
for you, said Quentin, all awkward gallantry. No, said Danny, for fire and blood. In Daenerys 8 of A Dance with Dragons, Danny brings Prince Quentin Martell to meet her dragons in the pit at the base of the Great Pyramid of Marine. We know from her thoughts that she's largely sympathetic to the Dornish prince and his mission, even though she believes her present situation prevents her from accepting his offer. She tells him that she understands his mission, and while Quentin claims awkwardly that she herself is the endgame, Danny's answer, no, for fire and blood, proves that her understanding is very much in line with what Doran tells Ariane about the goal of Quentin's mission at the end of A Feast for Crows. Vengeance, justice, fire and blood. And so it appears from everything she says that Danny might be prepared to let Quentin try his hand at bonding with one of her children. When an overawed Quentin asks her if she means to ride them, she replies, One of them. All I know of dragons is what my brother told me when I was a girl, and some I read in books. But it is said that even Aegon the Conqueror never dared Mount Vagar or Meraxes, nor did his sisters ride Balerion the Black Dread. Dragons live longer than men, some for hundreds of years, so Balerion had other riders after Aegon died, but no rider ever flew two dragons. By the time we next get Quentin's POV, Danny has fulfilled her promise to ride one of the dragons and flown away on Drogon after the events of Daznak's Pit. In the meantime, having seen what a dragon is capable of, Quentin has concocted a plan to make the most of what he saw as her offer to him. He's arranged, via Sir Geris Drinkwater's meeting with several of the Windblown, to meet the tattered prince to enlist the help of the Windblown. Drink and Arch do their best to dissuade him from this plan and urge Quentin to follow Barristan's advice to flee Slaver's Bay while they can still find a ship to take them away. Sir Garrus tells him, When Barristan the Bold tells you to run, a wise man laces up his boots. But Quentin is sure he understood the meaning behind Danny introducing him to her dragons and is frustrated by his companion's lack of purpose. As this passage shows, they do not see... His friends had lost sight of his true purpose here. The road leads through her, not to her. Daenerys is the means to the prize, not the prize itself. The dragon has three heads, she said to me. My marriage need not be the end of all your hopes, she said. I know why you are here, for fire and blood. I have Targaryen blood in me. You know that. I can trace my lineage back. Garrus Drinkwater's reply is blunt. Fuck your lineage. The dragons won't care about your blood, except maybe how it tastes. You cannot tame a dragon with a history lesson. They're monsters, not maesters. Quent, is this truly what you want to do? And so begins a discussion of the nature of life and death, adventure, glory and destiny. Quentin is sure that his own purpose and duty, and in fact his destiny, is to be a saviour for dawn. 
his father sent him with a mission, and the dutiful prince means to fulfil it in any way possible, claiming that he wants to give some meaning to the deaths of the three companions who had accompanied them and died along the way. Yeah, and Drinkwater's reply, men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, is one of those deeply profound statements that George drops into his narrative, intended to make the reader ponder and debate, and also to highlight an internal struggle or the direction of a character arc. Ironically, Quentin's goal is to try to make sense of his life and the mission he's been sent on by creating meaning from what might otherwise be seen as failure. As we'll see going forward, though, it's nearly a sure thing that Quentin's death will be the most meaningful thing to come out of his long adventure. That's right, because having failed his mission, the news of his death and of its manner will certainly cause huge ripple effects back in Dawn, with the strong possibility that Danny is blamed for it, as she most likely will be for the deaths of her brother, her first husband, and all of those souls killed at Daznak's pit, and who knows who else. We saw in Quentin's previous chapter, The Windblown, how rumours about Danny and her murderous, bloodthirsty and ambitious nature were already spreading about the region, to the point that Quentin had been having serious doubts about his destiny. It runs in the blood. King Ares II had been mad. All of Westeros knew that. He had exiled two of his hands and burned a third. If Daenerys is as murderous as her father, must I still marry her? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The still very much alive Quentin, seemingly imbued with a new sense of purpose after his conversation with Danny about dragons, sets out to meet the tattered prince in a wine sink called the Purple Lotus in Marine, with his companions still cautioning him that sellswords are not to be trusted. Quentin assures them that all he's trusting in is their greed— they want gold, glory, power, he says, but he's also got this newfound confidence in his mission, thinking that his plan is, quote, my own destiny. I am a prince of Dorne, and the blood of dragons is in my veins. And so Quentin and his companions go boldly into the cellar of the wine sink over Sir Geris's repeated objections to meet with a man who brought them to Marine under false pretenses. The Tattered Prince, a Pentoshi nobleman, is an imposing figure with a curious history. We learned his backstory in Quentin's The Windblown Chapter. When the Tattered Prince was three and twenty, the Magisters of Pentos had chosen him to be their new prince, hours after beheading their old prince. Instead, he'd buckled on a sword, mounted his favourite horse, and fled to the disputed lands, never to return. He had ridden with the second sons, the Iron Shields, and the Maiden's men, then joined with five brothers-in-arms to form the Windblown. Of those six founders, only he survived. We also get a description of him which reveals the origin of his nom de guerre. His stallion-spotted hindquarters were covered with ragged strips of cloth torn from the surcoats of men his master had slain. The prince's cloak was sewn together from more of the same. An old man he was, past sixty, yet he still sat straight and tall in the high saddle, and his voice was strong enough to carry to every corner of the field. 
As for the cloak itself, it says, His ragged cloak was made of twists of cloth of many colors, blue and gray and purple, red and gold and green, magenta and vermilion and cerulean, all faded by the sun. So Tatters, or Rags as he's sometimes known, is a standout figure in his distinctive cloak. But in the cellar of the Purple Lotus, he is wearing drab brown over his mail and looks unremarkable. As he tells Quentin, My ragged raiment is a poor thing, yet those tatters fill my foes with fear, and on the battlefield the sight of my rags blowing in the wind emboldens my men more than any banner. And if I want to move unseen, I need only slip it off to become plain and unremarkable. He begins by saying to Quentin, I understand you are a prince. Would that I had known. I promise not to have you killed until I've heard you out. That is the least I can do for a fellow prince. Tatters has brought an extra companion beyond the agreed-upon two men, but he points out that his third is a woman, pretty Maris, and offers Quentin some free advice. In this world, a man must learn to seize whatever gifts the gods chose to send him. That was a lesson I learned at some cost. I offer it to you as a sign of my good faith. The conference doesn't immediately go very well, since the windblown are justifiably angry that Quentin and his companions broke their contract with them, and that their deception has led to several of their best men being held prisoner inside of Marine. Tatters confesses that he's curious though, and after enduring a litany of what sounds like threats and mockery, Quentin comes to the point. He inquires after the health of Yerkazo Yunzak, the Yunkish commander who contracted with the windblown, knowing full well that Yerkaz died at Daznak's pit. And this is where we first find out that the Yunkai have not named a new commander, but have chosen to share the command in an unusual way. The Council of Masters has been unable to agree. Yezanzo Kogaz had the most support, but now he's died as well. The wise masters are rotating the supreme command amongst themselves. This is a detail that will be highly significant in the conduct of the conflict and the prospects of the Yunkish assault on Marine. In fact, much of our insight into the sellsword companies hired by the Yunkish and the news and rumours that reaches the combatants outside the walls of the city initially comes in Quentin's chapters. And here, Quentin reminds the tattered prince that it was Yerkazo Yunzak who signed his contract. And that, in light of the tentative peace between Yunkai and Marine, it seems unlikely that that contract would be honoured. Yeah, this is a blatant appeal to that motivating factor of sellswords that Quentin insisted to Garrus would be his focus, their desire for gold, glory, and power. The tattered prince seems unconcerned, telling Quentin that someone will need their swords and hire them, as someone always does. And then, Quentin shows his hand. I have need of those swords. Dorn will hire you. Quentin not only offers to hire the windblown, but offers to pay them double what Yunkai was paying. The hitch is that their money is all in a bank in Volantis, and the final payment would have to be made in Dorn. 
its shades of Tyrion convincing the mountain clans of the Vale to give him safe passage and accompany him to the Riverlands, and Tatters isn't having it. So, let me see if I understand. A proven liar and oathbreaker wishes to contract with us and pay in promises. And for what services? I wonder. Are my wind blown to smash the Yunkai and sack the Yellow City? Defeat a Dothraki Kalasar in the field? Escort you home to your father? Or will you be content if we deliver Queen Daenerys to your bed, wet and willing? Tell me true, Prince Frog, what would you have of me and mine? The answer from Quentin is short and to the point. I need you to help me steal a dragon. Finally, Quentin's plan is made explicit, and so is the price of the wind blown. Quentin apparently misjudged his mark on one level, for gold isn't the be-all and end-all for the tattered prince after all. Double does not pay for dragons, princeling. Even a frog should know that much. Dragons come dear, and men who pay in promises should have at least the sense to promise more. What I want is Pentos. And so an agreement was forged between the two princes, the men making, quote, marks on paper to seal the bargain, the windblown's assistance in Quentin's plan in exchange for Dawn's, and, perhaps more to the point, a dragon support in the tattered prince's quest for Pentos. Quentin promised Tatters that he would be able to control the dragons. Quote, it was in his blood, he said. He had Targaryen blood. The tattered prince would arrange a ship big enough to carry two dragons, and also have six of his windblown meet Quentin and his companions at the Great Pyramid of Marine with an ox cart carrying an ox carcass and two dead sheep. Tatters himself would be nearby with another 50 men. The purpose of this sellsword's presence was, according to Archibald Ironwood, to help us get the dragons chained up so we could get them to the docks. And so, on the appointed dawn, disguised as brazen beasts, Quentin and his two companions would make their way to the base of the Great Pyramid to let their allies in through a side gate. Men die on grand adventures. He was not wrong. That was in the stories, too. The hero sets out with his friends and companions, faces danger, comes home triumphant. Only some of his companions don't return at all. The hero never dies, though. I must be the hero. In the hours leading up to the operation, Quentin was besieged by his own doubts, and his friend Geris Drinkwater fanned those flames. Begging and pleading his prince to reconsider, Drink insisted that the danger they were facing was not worth the cost, and not like to be successful. Quentin, dutiful and determined to be a hero for Dawn, refused to change his mind. It was his destiny he was undertaking, and all of his friend's doubts, even when combined with his own, could not convince him otherwise. They do not understand. They may be Dornish, but I am Dawn. Years from now, when I am dead, this will be the song they sing of me, he thought. Later, Archibald Ironwood would tell Barristan Selmy, 
The moment we got in, though, you could see none of it was going to work. The dragons were too wild. But things really started to go wrong even before when the final set of guards failed to accept the password Quentin and his companions tried to use to get through the door that would take them to the pit where the dragons were chained. On a meta level, there's an interesting arrangement of chapters around this particular part of the Miranese timeline. Barristan's Kingbreaker chapter comes directly before Quentin's Dragon Tamer chapter. In Quentin's chapter, he is given the day's password by the Tattered Prince. When Quentin demanded to know how he came by that knowledge, Tatters replied, We chanced upon some brazen beasts, and Maris asked them prettily. But a prince should know better than to pose such questions, Dornish. In Pentos, we have a saying. Never ask the baker what went into the pie. Just eat. And the password Tatters gave them did work on the first set of guards the trio encountered, though it does say that the two, wearing the masks of a fox and a rat, exchanged a look before accepting Quentin and Garrus as their relief. But at the second gate, three of the four guards wore locust masks. Their sergeant, a basilisk, reacted to the password in such a way that Quentin knew they had been alerted to something out of the ordinary, and there was no choice but to kill the four brazen beasts. And if we look back at that Barristan chapter placed just previously, we can find the answer to what happened. In The Kingbreaker, Barristan and Skahaz plot to take Hisdar into custody to answer the charge of attempting to poison Daenerys with the locusts in the royal box at Dasnak's pit. Tonight, the shavepate says, all my men will be in place. The word is Grolio. As part of their coup, Skahaz plans to reclaim command of the brazen beasts from Hisdar's cousin Margaz, placing men loyal to him at all key posts within the pyramid. And surely the dragon pit qualifies as a key posting, and the fact that several of the guards there were wearing locust masks may also be significant, since when Barristan meets Skahaz prior to heading into Hisdar's chambers, the shave pate has with him six locusts who will accompany Barristan to the king. After exchanging the new password, Grolio, Skahaz offers, I have more locusts if you need them. And so it seems like the locust-masked guards are specifically the shave pate's men who are in on the coup and will answer only to Grolio. And so when Quentin offered the password as dog, he identified himself as someone not involved in the coup, and therefore his attempt to enter the dragon pit would be viewed as highly suspicious. So subtle confirmation that the guards were the shavepate's men, and that Quentin's plan had more problems than he knew. The number one being timing, since Skahaz and Baristan's coup was taking place at the same time as his own infiltration of the dragon pit. But Quentin was certainly aware of many of his plan's shortcomings, and killing the guards did nothing to reassure him. And when he protested to the Windblown, who were now accompanying them, Pretty Meris reminded him, You were told your scheme was madness, have you forgotten? Do what you came to do. Remembering the dragons made Quentin feel even more sick than the four dead men had, but he did manage to remind himself of his goal. Fire and blood, blood and fire. 
though the thought that followed seems particularly ominous in hindsight. The blood was pooling at his feet, soaking into the brick floor. The fire was beyond those doors. Beyond the doors, though, waited two monsters from a child's fairy tale. As the reluctant hero entered the dragon's lair, it says, Warrior, grant me courage, he prayed. He did not want to do this, but he saw no other way. Why else would Daenerys have shown me the dragons? She wants me to prove myself to her. Viserion and Rhaegal had been chained and left in darkness, and they had grown wild. They had also grown. The first dragon Quentin encountered when he entered the lair was Rhaegal. His head is described as larger than a horse's, an iron collar with a broken chain around his neck, the glow of dragon flame visible behind his sharp black teeth. Quentin remembered that Rhaegal had still been chained to the wall and floor when Daenerys brought him to the pit. All that remained of that chain now was a pile of melted and twisted links. Viserion was not in evidence at first. Then Quentin recalled that when he was there with Danny, the white dragon had been loose and hanging from the ceiling. And so he looked up and realised that Viserion had clawed himself a den out of the stone walls of the pit and that he was even now waking and emerging from that den. The sight of the white dragon's head and eyes and outstretched wings caused Quentin Martell to panic. While he called for meat to subdue the beasts, the swords were shouting for chains, and Viserion took wing. Even as Garrus Drinkwater tried urgently to pull Quentin away from the pit, saying, Quent, this will not work, they are too wild, they... The white dragon landed between the Dornishman and the door where the sellsword stood. Quentin tried valiantly to attract his attention to subdue him with the whip he had brought for that purpose, but Viserion, either realizing the door to freedom was open or perhaps simply that there was meat in the sellsword's wagon, moved in the opposite direction. A terrified sellsword let loose a crossbow bolt and was decapitated and devoured by the enraged dragon for his trouble. Realising that the situation was spiralling out of control, Quentin tried again to assert himself over the white dragon, and it seemed for half a heartbeat that he might succeed. Here's the passage. He let his whip on coil. Viserion, he called, louder this time. He could do this. He would do this. His father had sent him to the far ends of the earth for this. He would not fail him. Viserion, he snapped the whip in the air with a crack that echoed off the blackened walls. The pale head rose, the great gold eyes narrowed, wisps of smoke spiralled upward from the dragon's nostrils. Down, the prince commanded. You must not let him smell your fear. Down, down, down. He brought the whip around and laid a lash across the dragon's face. Viserion, Hissed. But Quentin had forgotten Rhaegal. As his friends frantically shouted warnings to him, he became aware of a, quote, hot wind and the sound of wings behind him. When he turned to face the new threat, he remembered Rhaegal. The green one is Rhaegal. And then it says, when he raised his whip, he saw that the lash was burning his hand as well. All of him, all of him was burning. Oh, he thought. Then 
he began to scream. And so ended the grand adventure of Prince Quentin Martel. The five windblown that had survived the attack vanished. Archibald Ironwood used his bare hands to extinguish the flames that were consuming his prince. And Garris Drinkwater was guarding his companions with sword in hand when the Shapeate's men arrived, but the dragons were gone and it was too late for Quentin. We know from the following Barristan chapter that it took three days for the Dornish prince to die, and that all the while his companions were held in a cell in the Great Pyramid, while the two dragons stalked the skies above the city, burning pyramids and terrorising the population. And so, in the next segment, we'll take things up from Sir Barristan Selmy's point of view, recapping all of his chapters which take place after Danny leaves the city. The final count was 214 slain, three times as many burned or wounded. Drogon was gone from the city by then, last seen high over the Skahazadan, flying north. Of Daenerys Targaryen, no trace had been found. Some swore they saw her fall. Others insisted that the dragon had carried her off to devour her. They are wrong. Before we address the final days of Quentin Martell, we want to recap other events in Marine as seen in Barristan's chapters after we gain his POV following Danny's departure. A Dance with Dragons was a tough book to write for George, and the most well-known sticking point was the so-called Miranese Knot. George had tangled himself up around Slaver's Bay, trying to decide the correct ordering of certain events and intersections relating to Daenerys' story. Let's face it, Marine is a complex setting at the best of times, and it continues to develop into the centre of an ongoing convergence that will flow over into the winds of winter. And one of the key manoeuvres made by George to alleviate the tight pull of this literary knot was the decision to make Sir Barristan Selmy a point-of-view character following Danny's flight from the city. We've known Barristan since the first novel, is first mentioned in Bran's second point-of-view chapter, a renowned knight who eventually became a victim of apparent ageism when he was discarded from Joffrey's Kingsguard in A Game of Thrones. But rather than resting on his laurels and choosing an easy path into retirement, he travelled across the narrow sea to search for the exiled scions of House Targaryen, the house he had faithfully served until he pledged to serve the new king, Robert Baratheon, in the aftermath of his rebellion. With Viserys dead at the hands of Caldrogo, Barristan, masquerading as Arstan Whitebeard, fell into the service of Daenerys after saving her from an attempted assassination via a deadly manticore in A Clash of Kings. Following Daenerys' conquering of Slaver's Bay, in Dance we saw Barristan raised to Lord Commander of her Queensguard, giving him official capacity to make decisions and advise his queen. And so when Danny flies away from Dasnak's pit on Drogon's back, Barristan is left to exercise his influence and authority effectively if he is to protect her fragile hold on Marine. And it's through Barristan's POV that we learn not only how tenuous that hold may be, but the full story of what happened at Dasnak's pit. Hundreds dead and wounded, 
carnage and wreckage all around the pit and Danny gone and presumed dead by many inside the city. With this edition of Barristan's point of view, the reader enters the mind of this hardened yet vulnerable character as he attempts to speak with Danny's voice and act in her best interest. It's a heavy burden, to say the least, given the aforementioned layers of political and sociological complexity in the area, and so things stand in Barristan's first chapter, The Queen's Guard. The chapter begins with familiar dynamics to Barristan, Reznak mo Reznak, insinuating that his services are no longer required, given that Hisdar wishes to select his own bodyguards. However, Barristan refuses to believe Daenerys is dead, and he sustains his dedication to her. With Skahaz the Shavepate stripped of his command of the Brazen Beasts and replaced by Hisdar's cousin, the Unsullied withdrawn to their barracks. Jogo, Dario, Grolio and Hero remaining hostages of the Yunkai, the notable Dothraki dispatched in search for Danny, and even Missandei being replaced, Barristan has good reason to be suspicious of the Miranese natives. It doesn't take long to realise he is isolated, and given that he's never really been a political player, we might begin to wonder if he's out of his depth. Barristan doesn't trust the new king, Hisdar, although he attempts to disguise his true feelings from the unctuous Resnak. Feeling old and barely recognizing his own reflection, the chapter's full of memories of his illustrious career, leading to the poignant thought that he's failed Daenerys as he had failed Aerys, Rhaegar, and Robert. He knows that his old age has limited his ability as a warrior and that his true place is not in Marine. When we consider the fates of other fish-out-of-water characters in this series, namely Ned Stark and Viserys, the reader has genuine cause for concern. It's no wonder that Barristan nurtures hope of Danny's return. His service to her is really all he has at this point, given that he's fled from his home and completely defined himself by his vocation. His entire identity hinges upon it. And so when the Shave Pate requests a clandestine meeting with him, Barristan finds himself thinking of past Kingsguard, whose deeds were written into the White Book. The best of them overcame their flaws, did their duty, and died with their swords in their hands. The worst? The worst were those who played the Game of Thrones. It's an ominous thought. Barristan is acutely aware that he is moving beyond his remit, but sees no other course of action. Also in this chapter, we see Barristan training his protégés, and here he's in his element. Having previously thought that there was no honor to be found in Marine, this is an opportunity to instill some of his own standards and knightly beliefs into his pupils to pass on skills and wisdom that would one day benefit Daenerys. There's an ancient Greek proverb that says, Society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they shall never sit. And by training this new batch of knights, Barristan is coming to terms with his own mortality and doing his very best for his queen's future. King Hisdar has his pit fighters, but Daenerys will have knights, he thinks. And tension grows as Barristan makes himself less conspicuous and considers what awaits him in his meeting with the Shavepates. The oaths and duties of the Kingsguard are directly addressed when Barristan wonders if he is in any way bound to Hisdar. 
he concludes that Danny never ordered him to serve her husband and therefore he is free to side with the shave bait should it come to it. Barristan has great difficulty with all of this and the reader senses he is a man cut out for straightforward obedience and willful servitude and is wholly uncomfortable making decisions of his own. It says he reflects... The world was simpler when I had a Lord Commander to decide such matters. Now I am the Lord Commander, and it is hard to know which path is right. At their shadowy secret meeting, a masked Skahaz approaches Barristan and purports to know who poisoned the honeyed locusts, which might have killed Daenerys had Strong Belwast not had such an outsized appetite. In no uncertain terms, Skahaz blames his dar feeding into Barristan's natural suspicions of the king. With Daenerys gone, the shavepate asserts that Hisdar's peace was a sham and that he will open the city gates to the Valentine fleet when they arrive, re-enslaving the city and perhaps even condemning Barristan himself to the fighting pits. Skahaz makes a convincing case, yet we must remember that, as we said, Barristan is a fish out of water, much as Ned Stark was in King's Landing, and he might make an easy mark. Barristan faces a difficult dilemma, reminding himself that Skahaz is speaking treason, conspiracy, and later that, I swore no vows to Hisdar Zolorak. He is in conflict with himself as the Shavepate attempts to convince him to speak to Grey Worm, who leads the Freed Unsullied, about striking against the Yunkai, remembering the peace was signed by Daenerys herself. At which point Skahaz insinuates that Danny's children, the freed men and women, need to be protected, and it appears that Skahaz is either genuinely invested in protecting Daenerys' legacy in the city, or else he's being highly manipulative. Although Skahaz offers up the confectioner who supplied the honeyed locusts, he doesn't produce any hard evidence that Hisdar is guilty of attempting to assassinate Danny. Instead, the shavepate agrees not to hurt the king until evidence is found, as Barristan reminds himself that Hisdar is, after all, Danny's consort, and therefore should be treated with fairness. If he is found to be guilty, Barristan plans to give the man a swift death himself. As the chapter closes, Barristan agrees to approach Grey Worm, and we sense he's in way over his head as Danny's remaining bastion within the city. The only person with any authority to be making decisions in her name is struggling to do so, and as it stands, we're headed towards a coup of some kind. And like it or not, Barristan finds himself at the center of the storm. All kneel for his magnificence, his Darzo Lorak, 14th of that noble name, King of Marine, Scion of Gis, Octark of the Old Empire, Master of the Skahazadan, Consort to Dragons, and Blood of the Harpy. The second Barristan chapter is the aptly named The Discarded Knight, which opens at Hisdar's court. Although he's no longer guarding Hisdar in an official capacity, Barristan is allowed to keep his blade in court, signifying that he must still be considered a protector of the crown. Hisdar has rearranged the setting, sitting high on a throne ornamented with gilded dragon carvings instead of the humble bench that was Danny's preference. And in spite of the king keeping a symbolic empty throne for his wife, 
Barristan can see that Hisdar is gradually asserting more and more control. He thinks, no dragon chair can replace a dragon, no matter how elaborately it's carved. And further exposition is given to Barristan's sense of alienation in this foreign city. He is terribly lonely and harbours self-doubts that keep him up at night. It says he prayed, shield me from these doubts that gnaw at me and give me the strength to do what is right. In spite of spending these nighttime hours in prayer, it's noted that, quote, neither prayer nor dawn had brought him certainty. However, there's one aspect of his thoughts that does display certainty, and that's his confidence that, should it come to it, he should have no problem dispatching the hardened pit fighters who now surround his dark. Despite his inner turmoil, Baristan has not forgotten how to kill and remains focused on doing what he does best, if there comes a need. And we're reminded that this court now has Hisdar's stamp all over it. We mentioned that Skahaz has been demoted as the leader of the Brazen Beasts, although it's also been noted that the bronze-masked City Watch likely remain loyal to the Shave Pate, and not to the newly installed Margaz Zolorak, Hisdar's cousin. The court presides over cases put forth in the aftermath of Drogon's flight from Dasnak's pit. The atmosphere is volatile, with some claiming Danny is dead and others angrily refuting the claim. Marine is truly divided. Noticing that Prince Quentin Martel is present with his companions, Barristan thinks... They should not have come. Martel does not realise his danger. When Barristan thinks that Daenerys was his only friend at this court and she is gone, the knight could almost be talking about himself. At least Barristan Selmy has a storied history of martial prowess, something of value to offer his dar. Both Barristan and the reader are acutely aware that Quentin can only be viewed as a rival and would be less than adept at defending himself. Barristan, who is well accustomed to observing the events of court, catches Hisdar frowning at Quentin's presence and whispering in the ear of his cousin Margaz. The knight feels on some level responsible for Quentin, given he was a sworn brother to his uncle, Prince Lewin. Martel was dancing in a viper's nest, and he did not even see the snakes, is yet another line that Barristan could at least partly apply to himself. His trail of thought leads to the sudden suspicion that Quentin could be involved in the honeyed locust's plot. The Dornish contingent might have been attempting to kill his dar. After all, he is kin to the Red Viper, Barristan thinks, and would have a clear motive to dispose of Danny's husband. Wheels are still turning in Barristan's suspicious mind when the Yunkish men arrive, three slavers accompanied by Bloodbeard, commander of the Company of the Cat. The sellsword ignores any pleasantries and throws a decapitated head across the room. It is the head of Admiral Grolio, one of the hostages given over to the Yunkish. One of the slavers announces that Grolio has been killed as compensation for the death of wise master Yerkaz Zoyunzak, who died during the stampede at Dasnak's pit. Many questions enter Barristan's mind before he concedes to himself that I have no skill at unravelling such knots. 
So George has no problem making plain the fact that Barristan is in over his head. The reader knows it, Barristan knows it, and we're just waiting to see how this vulnerability will manifest. For now, he can only do his best, and in the absence of any leadership being shown by Hisdar, he addresses the king, If it please you to recall, the noble Yurkaz died by happenstance. He stumbled on the steps as he tried to flee the dragon and was crushed beneath the feet of his own slaves and companions. That, or his heart burst in terror. He was old. But Barristan's words mean little, and although Hisdar challenges the Yunkai over breaching the peace, the reply from the slavers is, Our peace has not been breached. Blood pays for blood, a life for a life. To show our good faith, we return three of your hostages. And thus the hostages that were Hisdar's relatives were returned, while the envoy declares that the other three, Dario, Hero and Jogo, will only be returned following the deaths of the dragons. Barristan evaluates Bloodbeard, deciding that the sellsword is fermenting war in order to obtain the plunder he originally came for. He came to sack a city, and Hisdar's peace has cheated him of his plunder. He will do whatever he must to start the bloodshed. Just like Ned in King's Landing, Barristan makes decent observations, but he's consumed by unraveling knots and mysteries beyond his political aptitude. In the end, Hisdar closes the court without reacting to the beheading other than a relatively mild chastisement. It falls to Barristan to request the return of Grolio's body, his companion over many months of travel about whom he thinks, Grolio was a good man. He did not deserve this end. All he ever wanted was to go home. A sentiment that, again, can be applied to many of the exiles and travelers in this story. Speaking of which, as the court empties, Barristan watches the Dornish contingent leave, thinking, what would Daenerys want? He thought he knew. The knight catches up with Quentin and urges him to display wisdom and leave for Westeros immediately. When his advice is met with some resistance, Barristan explains that the locusts were poisoned and Quentin's reaction is so convincing that it serves to dispel any previous suspicion that he was involved. However, if Hisdar was the culprit, then he would need a scapegoat and Quentin would be the perfect candidate according to Barristan. So Quentin as the poisoner, first purported by Barristan only a few pages prior, now seems like an open and shut red herring, serving to illustrate Barristan's lack of skill at untangling political knots. The chapter concludes with Barristan recalling how he came to be known as Barristan the Bold over 50 years ago, and urging Quentin once more to leave Marine and aspire to be known in Dawn as Quentin the Wise. A pale shadow and a dark, the two conspirators came together in the quiet of the armory on the Great Pyramid's second level, amongst racks of spears, sheaves of quarrels, and walls hung with trophies from forgotten battles. All my men will be in place. The word is Grolio. Barristan's third dance chapter, named The Kingbreaker, 
begins with another shadowy meeting between our point of view and the shave pate in the quiet armory on the Great Pyramid's second level. Skahaz has chosen this night for the coup to take place and shares the password, Grolio, with Barristan, which the knight thinks is fitting, although Selmy acknowledges that Daenerys would never stand for her hostages being brutally beheaded as Hisdar did, he does reflect that the king seemed genuinely distraught. So here Barristan is ignoring his own instincts, instead allowing Skehaz to weave the narrative for him. Sham, his own kin of Lorak were returned unharmed. You saw the Yunkai played us a mummer's farce with noble Hisdar as chief mummer. The issue was never Yerkaz Zoyunzak. The other slavers would gladly have trampled that old fool themselves. This was to give Hisdar a pretext to kill the dragons. And when the shave bait concludes that Hisdar wants the dragons dead before the Volantine forces arrive to reinstall widespread slavery, Barristan agrees that the allegations fit together seamlessly. So the shave bait's plan would be to take Hisdar into custody at the hour of the wolf, the blackest time of night, followed by a dawn attack on the Yunkai. This causes Barristan to reminisce on the time he heroically saved King Aerys at Duskendale. However, in the end, the knight remains honor-bound to his queen and refuses to break the peace signed by Daenerys. Instead, he aims to capture Hisdar and form a council to rule in his stead and otherwise maintain peace unless their foe refuses to return the hostages and retreat. Barristan views Skehaz's methods as dishonourable, and Skehaz thinks Barristan's plan is overcautious and stupid, so the two men are completely at odds over how to proceed. Whereas the Free Brothers and Stalwart Shields favour Skehaz's more violent arrangement, with members wanting to right Yunkish wrongs with a swift revenge, the mother's men side with Barristan's more cautious approach, so we see a significant divide in Danny's camp. And the shave pate says that he agreed with Barristan up until the point where Grolio's severed head was unceremoniously dumped onto the floor, claiming that act proved that the slavers have no honour. We do, Barristan responds, suggesting that the themes of is honor ever foolish and is mercy ever a mistake are in full play here. Once again, we're reminded of Ned Stark in King's Landing when he attempted to do the right and honorable thing to his own eventual detriment. In the end, the shavepate acquiesces before bringing up the subject of Hisdar's guards. Barristan hopes to neutralise the scene by convincing Hisdar that he will not come to harm and therefore should order the pit fighters Steelskin and Kraz to stand down and so avoid bloodshed. However, Selmy is ready for combat and has absolute confidence in himself. He has been a man of the Kingsguard for many years and is therefore used to watching and waiting for any threats. He deems that pit fighters are impatient and thus are ill-suited for such guardsmanship. The shavepate then assures Barristan that the brazen beasts are his, or will be once he takes their new commander, Hisdar's cousin, into custody. He also expresses the blunt opinion that if the three hostages, Hero, Joko, and Dario, are murdered, it would be no great loss. Moreover, Skahaz tries to convince Barristan that Dario's death 
could only benefit their cause, and internally the knight agrees. He thinks her love for Dario is poison, a slower poison than the locusts, but in the end, as deadly. Barristan is old and wise enough to know the truth of that, but now he's really making huge calls on behalf of Daenerys. He's gone from a what would Danny do approach to I know what's best for Danny and I might make a major decision here that she will never know the truth of. But there's still the matter of Jogo and Hero, the other two hostages, and when Skahaz brings up the notion of threatening their child hostages to ensure the safety of their own, he says that Daenerys is not here. It is for you and me to do what must be done. You know that I am right. Although Skahaz has shown he has a great deal of sway over Barristan's thinking, the knight draws a firm line at killing children. Again, we're getting serious Ned Stark echoes from these Barristan chapters, and Skahaz condescends, calling Barristan Sir Grandfather as he reluctantly agrees to the terms. Overall, though, Barristan still finds himself in an uncomfortable place. He believes that he doesn't act with Skahaz, the dragons will be killed, and the slavers will reassert control, and that if he does act, he'll be dishonorable. The brief thought crosses his mind that if Hestar is in fact innocent, his actions are treason. Once again, Selmy seeks refuge in training his pupils in the arts of knighthood and considers knighting Tumko Lo, Larak, and perhaps the Red Lamb there and then, until the thought occurs to him that such a move would be ruinous to the trio should the coup somehow go awry. They deserve better, Sir Barristan decided. Better a long life as a squire than a short one as a soiled knight. Finally, he conveys to his students that it is better to die with honor than to live without it, displaying how absolutist he is on this issue as we begin the build-up towards the fateful night. I am not made for this, he reflected as he looked out over the sprawling city. Plots, ploys, whispers, lies, secrets within secrets, and somehow I have become part of them. In this moment of reflection, Barristan thinks of some regrets from his past, all related to the tourney of Harrenhal. When he failed to unhorse Prince Rhaegar in the tilts, not only did he fail to halt the moment the smiles died, but he also, in his mind at least, failed to save Ashara Dane, the woman he loved. It says, of all of his failures, none haunted Barristan Selmy so much as that. With so much remorse and trepidation in his mind, Barristan lingers in the bath, scrubbing his skin until it's raw, a scene which evokes the bathhouse scene in which Jamie Lannister attempted to cleanse himself metaphorically. Barristan, it would appear, is trying to do the same thing. And donning his finely wrought armour and his white cloak, Sir Barristan wonders which other of his former brothers would have done what he is about to do, as the hour of the wolf arrives and he heads towards the heart of the Great Pyramid with some brazen beasts aptly masked as locusts. When he comes to Steelskin guarding the door, he agrees to advance into Hisdar's chambers alone. Finding the king sleepy and naked, Barristan asks bluntly, Magnificence, are you the harpy? 
Hisdar is outraged, predictably blaming the Dornish contingent for the poisoning before defending himself pointedly from all accusations. He tells Barristan to leave the city, at which point he calls in Kraz to save him. Although the pit fighter is 40 years his junior, Barristan suddenly feels alive and parries several blows of Kraz's arak aimed at his unprotected head. However, Kraz is not used to fighting a man in full plate armour, and after trading a burst of blows, it says Barristan slashed open the pit fighter's belly, parried the Iraq, then finished Kraz with a quick thrust to the heart as the pit fighter's entrails came sliding out like a nest of greasy eels. By now, Hisdar is begging for mercy, but Barristan only wants to imprison him until Daenerys returns. As he leads the king away, he thinks, I was a king's guard. What am I now? This whole episode has seemingly caused Barristan a crisis of identity, another recurring theme of this saga, but he doesn't actually have much time for remorse, as the cupbearer Miklaz comes to inform Hisdar that Reznak has asked him to come at once. Barristan is momentarily alarmed since Gahaz was supposed to take Reznak into custody as well, and he worries that the plan has gone awry. But the problem is something much bigger. The dragons have been loosed, sir, McClaz informs him. And the chapter ends with Barristan's thought, Seven save us all. What Prince Quentin did, he did for dawn. Do you take me for some doting grandfather? I've spent my life around kings and queens and princes. Sunspear means to take up arms against the Iron Throne. No, do not trouble to deny it. Doran Martel is not a man to call his spears without hope of victory. Duty brought Prince Quentin here. Duty, honour, thirst for glory, never love. Quentin was here for dragons, not Daenerys. Immediately after the Kingbreaker chapter, we skip backwards in time slightly to learn how Quentin loosed the dragons in his Dragon Tamer chapter, which we recapped earlier. Now, in Barristan's fourth and final A Dance with Dragons chapter, The Queen's Hand, we see the aftermath of Quentin's escapade. Gruesome details are offered regarding the three days Quentin took to die in Danny's bed. Horribly burned, his lips are gone, and one can see parts of his skull where the flesh had been burned away. Not all men were meant to dance with dragons, thinks Barristan, a reference to the novel's title. Barristan ponders the missing dragons, who thankfully are not fond of the current rainy weather, and of the missing Daenerys, who he hopes would never abandon her people. As time passes, Barristan's faith in Daenerys' survival is increasingly tested, although he clings on to his initial observation that she was riding Drogon when she departed Dasnak's pit. From Danny's balcony, Barristan observes the carnage that has once again been wreaked upon the city of Marine by dragon fire. It says... The rain had drowned the worst of the fires, but wisps of smoke still rose from the smouldering ruin that had been the Pyramid of Hazkar, and the great black pyramid of Yerazan, where Rhaegal had made his lair, hulked in the gloom like a fat woman bedecked with glowing orange jewels. 
In the aftermath of the coup and with the formation of a Westerosi-style council to carry on the governance of Marine, Barristan has been named, or assumed the title of, Queen's Hand. And yet he thinks, I am no hand, I am only a simple knight, the Queen's protector, I never wanted this. But, ever the dutiful soul, he forges ahead regardless, and what is duty if not doing what you don't want to do? Baristan has a war brewing with the Yunkai, Marinese nobles demanding the release of Hisdarzol Lorak, and two fire-breathing dragons ransacking the city that many Marinese are demanding he personally kill. And now, on top of everything else, the Sons of the Harpy have resumed their nighttime killings. It says, three murders the first night, nine the second. But to go from nine to nine and twenty in a single night... Of course, the matter of the Sons of the Harpy is a direct result of Baristan's arrest of Hisdar, and so the knight feels wholly responsible and rather helpless. With a so-called blood tax, notably failing to serve as a deterrent, Baristan arrives once more at the issue of the child hostages. Skehaz is keen to meet blood with blood, yet predictably, Baristan's sense of honour prohibits any revenge killings. As we said, the theme of protecting children is yet another echo of Ned Stark's dilemma in A Game of Thrones, and here Barristan similarly risks looking weak to his enemies by showing mercy towards innocent children. Barristan decides to hold a council meeting rather than open court, which he deems as Daenerys' duty and not his. In attendance were representatives of the Unsullied, the Mother's Men, the Dothraki, and the Stormcrows, as well as Hisdar's pit fighter guards. Strong Belwas makes his return to Page, appearing as though he had looked death in the face, a walking, talking reminder of the poisoned locusts. With Quentin having died on that morning, the subject of the Dornishmen arises. Archibald Ironwood and Geris Drinkwater had aided Quentin and therefore were guilty of loosing the dragons, and are now captives. The pit fighters would have the pits opened and the Dornishmen forced to fight, but Barristan unequivocally bars the opening of the pits due to the danger of the noise and blood attracting the dragons. He's beginning to make crucial leadership decisions in spite of his reluctance to do so, and he operates with the brief that the only thing holding everyone together is the notion that Danny still lives. He fears what would happen if Drogon were to return without her. And another decision Barristan made was to send the Green Grace to negotiate the hostages' freedom with the Yunkai. We learn that the plan was to offer the hostages weight in gold for their release, which, if refused by the wise masters, could cause tension with their greedy sellsword companies. It's a smart plan, and we learn that it was put forth by 11-year-old Missandei rather than Barristan himself. While the knight is capable of making the odd shrewd maneuver, it says he would never have thought of such a thing himself. With the assembly remaining unconvinced that there will be a peaceful resolve, Barristan's mind goes to war preparations, planning for what George has dubbed the Battle of Fire. When he replies to what his response will be when the Green Grace fails in her mission, with the Targaryen words fire and blood, Skehaz seems surprised at such steel from the man he and everyone else has been calling Sir Grandfather. 
You would break King Hizdar's peace, old man. Barasan's reply is to the point. I would shatter it. So he goes on to set the stage for the upcoming battle before turning to the serious business of getting every single commander on the same page. We've built the beacon atop the pyramid where once the harpy stood. Dry wood, soaked with oil, covered to keep the rain off. Should the hour come, and I pray that it does not, we will light that beacon. The flames will be your signal to pour out of our gates and attack. Every man of you will have a part to play. So every man must be in readiness at all times, day or night. We will destroy our foes or be destroyed ourselves. While Barristan concedes that he's not a political player like Littlefinger or Varys, this is familiar ground for him and we should hope his military news will come to the fore from here on in. After much deliberation regarding tactics to stem the advance of their foe should battle arise, Barristan concludes the meeting by acknowledging that the loose dragons will do what dragons do and might not be able to discern friend from foe. And with that said, Barristan goes to visit the captive Dornishmen in their cell with news of their prince's death, accompanied by Tumko Lo and the Red Lamb, whom he has apparently knighted after all. While Drinkwater seeks to vilify Danny and claims that Quentin came to Marine out of love for her, Barristan insists that the dragon plot was treason and that Quentin was motivated by duty, honor, and a thirst for glory rather than love. When Barristan guesses correctly that Quentin had offered the tattered prince Pentos in return for the help of the Windblown in subduing and capturing the dragons, he senses an opportunity. He plans to send the Dornishman and the Windblown, still held inside Marine, back to Tatters to offer Pentos if he can rescue and deliver the hostages. Whether Barristan should be investing so much effort in freeing three hostages is an interesting question, but he certainly seems dedicated to the attempt, and the Dornishmen agree to the terms. And later, Barristan meets with the Green Grace, Galaza Galaire, whom he observes to be 20 years his senior. He seems very trusting of her, even deferential, when he tells her that there is a place for her on the council ruling Marine in Danny's absence. I know that you have much to teach us all, your benevolence. We need your wisdom. Although she views this as empty courtesy and reiterates her opinion that Hisdar should be freed at once, enumerating the hardships the once privileged Marinese nobility are experiencing in his absence. The peace that we worked so hard to forge flutters like a leaf in an autumn wind. These are dire days. Death stalks our streets, riding the pale mare from thrice-cursed Astapor. Dragons haunt the skies, feasting on the flesh of children. Hundreds are taking ship, sailing for Yunkai, for Tolos, for Karth, for any refuge that will have them. The Pyramid of Hazkar has collapsed into a smoking ruin, and many of that ancient line lie dead beneath its blackened stones. The pyramids of Ulez and Yerizan have become the lairs of monsters, their masters homeless beggars. My people have lost all hope and turned against the gods themselves, giving over their nights to drunkenness and fornication. 
in spite of the Green Graces' protests, Barristan is still convinced that Hisdar is the harpy, and notably wonders if she might know the guilty parties, without ever considering if she could be the culprit herself, and more on that later. Ultimately, the Green Grace relays to him that the Yunkai want the dragons dead and will not listen to any other terms. At that moment, the shave pate burst into the room with the news that in response to Baristan's offer, the Yunkai have chosen war. The six trebuchets have been engaged and are now flinging diseased corpses into the city. The dragons are going to love this move. After all the politicking and mind games and decision-making to which Barristan has wholly unsuited, he's strangely relieved to be on familiar ground. War he understood, it says, and the knight's relief perhaps comes from the fact that he can at last stick to his comfort zone and do what he does best. The penultimate chapter in A Dance with Dragons, The Queen's Hand, ends with Barristan and Marine now on a war footing. Through the gloom of night, the dead men flew, raining down upon the city streets. The riper corpses would fall to pieces in the air and burst when they came smashing down onto the bricks, scattering worms and maggots and worse things. Others would bounce against the sides of pyramids and towers, leaving smears of blood and gore to mark the places where they'd struck. In February of 2013, George was the guest of honour at Boscone, a science fiction and fantasy convention held each year in Boston, where he read the first two Barristan chapters from The Winds of Winter. Barristan 1 was later released in print in the paperback version of A Dance with Dragons, while we still have only fan summaries of Barristan 2. Barristan 1 picks up where the Queen's Hand left off, with diseased bodies being flung into the city of Marine by Yunkish trebuchets outside the walls. It's noted that most of the bodies are landing just inside the walls, and that those come from the four machines on the southern part of the crescent of siege engines ringing the city. The two across the river on the north side seem to be engaging in the assault, but their missiles would be falling well short since... Quote, no trebuchet could throw across the width of the Skahazadan. Barristan is dressed for war, riding Danny Silver, accompanied by his three newly made knights, Tumco, the Red Lamb, and Larrick the Lash, as he makes his way to Marine's Market Square near the Western Gate during the Hour of the Wolf, where the fighting forces of the city are assembling in advance of a planned attack at dawn. The Stormcrows, the Unsullied, a collection of Dothraki riders, and a group of pit fighters all gathered to hear Barristan deliver their plan of attack once more. The other companies in the city would go out by the other three gates, while the Brazen Beasts, under the command of the Shavepate, would man the city walls during the sally. Barristan is concerned about the Pale Mare, the sheer numbers of the Yunkish side, and the amount of faith he's placing in the Tattered Prince and his windblown. Speaking to Danny in his mind, he says, This is what it has come to, my queen. Our fates hinge upon a sellsword's greed. Your city, your people, our lives. The tattered prince holds us all in his blood-stained hands. 
The plan, when he repeats it for the commanders, is relatively straightforward. We will hit them first with our horse as soon as the gate is opened, ride hard and fast straight at the slave soldiers. When the legions form up, sweep around them, take them from behind or from the flank, but do not try their spears. Remember your objectives. The objectives for the first wave are the trebuchets, the youngish commanders and their tents, and general chaos. By causing panic among the untrained and chained together slave soldiers and killing as many of their masters as possible, and by spreading fire within the camp, Barristan hoped to succeed at two things, disabling the trebuchets and giving the unsullied time to form their shield wall, which Barristan views as their greatest strength. At the sound of my horn, Grey Worm will advance in line and roll up the slavers and their soldiers. It may be that one or more Giscari legions will march out to meet them, shield to shield and spear to spear. That battle we shall surely win. As Baristan discusses advances and signals, the question is raised as to who would be second in command. The widower and then Jokin of the Stormcrows, he decides, and then Grey Worm, a formidable warrior, but one used to following rather than giving orders. And so, after reviewing the battle plans, it was left to wait for the dawn. Baristan, noting the nervousness of his young knights, called them to his side and delivered an inspiring lecture about the nature of war and a warrior's first battle. He tells them that their fears are normal, and to remember that many more men survive than die in most battles, and that battles are chaos, full of shit and blood and men screaming. He instructs them, above all else, keep moving. We are too few to win the battle. We ride to make chaos. And then it was the dawn, and the beacon atop the Great Pyramid that Barristan had caused to be prepared was lit, giving the signal that it was time to open the four gates of the city simultaneously and for the defenders to take the field. Instructing the Red Lamb, who bore the war horn, to sound the advance, the chapter concludes with a prayer. May the warrior protect us all. And Barristan, too, picks up with the attack underway. Roughly concurrent with Tyrion, too, it contains a description of the attack on the Harridan, including the cavalry's decimation of the slave legion known as the Herons. 200 pit fighters follow Barristan's cavalry charge, making, he thinks, as much noise as 2,000 would. The Unsullied begin their advance, and we know from Tyrion's second chapter that they are making their way to the Harpy's daughter. As Barristan wonders what has become of the sellswords employed by the Yunkish, one of his lads brings his attention to the ships in the bay. There seem to be far more than there were the day before, and for a moment, Barristan is afraid the Volantines have arrived. But when he asks Tumko to describe the banners flying from the masts and is told they display a giant squid, Barristan realizes it's the Ironborn. And after several confused moments of trying to recall the politics and loyalties of House Greyjoy, he realises that the ships are landing men ashore who are engaging in the fight against the Yonkish. The relief that the newcomers are on their side is followed by the excited declaration of someone who just moments before 
thought they were doomed. It's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Maker, the hammer and the anvil. We have them. We have them. From Tyrion too, we know that as this was occurring, the dragons have appeared in the sky above the battlefield, and the windblown have killed the Yunkish commander Gorzak Zoeraz. Barristan's faith in the tattered prince's greed seems like it's being rewarded, and his curiosity about what the other sellswords were doing is about to be answered as well. The mother's men have destroyed the long lances, the company of the cat were facing off against the unsullied, and the second sons are about to join the fray on the defender's side. And so, the Battle of Marine, also known as the Battle of Fire, is left suspended, with the dragons and the ironborn only just entering the scene, the majority of sellswords changing sides, and the scales seemingly set to tip in favor of the defenders. For now, we're left with only speculation as to the final outcome of this monumental battle, which will be presented from three different viewpoints. Before we come to that speculation, though, up next we'll do a brief rundown of the entire cast of supporting characters in Marine, a where-are-they-now type refresher to support the final segment where we'll speculate not only about the outcome of the battle, but about what might be happening inside the city while all of our viewpoints are engaged outside the walls. But first, let's take a quick break to recognise our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Radio Astros is powered by patrons, and our sincere thanks go to Aerodo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Hortense of Ashai, Blythe Spirit, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Christian, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Marge of the Mage, David Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Drew, Eliana Targaryen, Sir Sorsadelica, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Liam, Boss, the Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Scotty, Tim, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Darlis of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Barristan Selmy refused to believe that Daenerys Targaryen was dead. Perhaps that was why he was being put aside. One by one, Hisdar removes us all. 
Strong Belwas lingered at the door of death in the temple under the care of the Blue Graces, though Selmy half suspected they were finishing the job those honeyed locusts had begun. Skahaz's shavepate had been stripped of his command. The Unsullied had withdrawn to their barracks. Jogo, Dario Naharis, Admiral Grolio, and Hero of the Unsullied remained hostages of the Yunkai. Ago and Ricaro and the rest of the Queen's Kalasar had been dispatched across the river to search for their lost queen. Even Missandei had been replaced. The king did not think it fit to use a child as his herald, and a one-time Nathi slave at that. And now, me. In Barristan's Kingbreaker chapter, we saw him take his Darzo Lorak into custody on the charge of poisoning the locusts that he gave to Danny at Daznak's pit, saying, Come, I will escort you to a cell. You will be kept a prisoner until the Queen returns. If nothing can be proved against you, you will not come to harm. You have my word as a knight. Following this, we don't see or hear from the noble Hisdar again, though in Barristan's final chapter, we see the Green Grace urging him to free the king. Barristan, of course, refuses. Immediately following Hisdar's arrest, the Sons of the Harpy had resumed their nighttime murders, killing more than 40 freedmen and shavepates over the space of three nights. Barristan takes Gehaz at his word that this confirms that Hisdar is in league with the Harpy, and when Galaza Galer insists on the king being restored so that he can halt the killings as he did once before, Barristan continues to take this as confirmation of Hisdar's guilt. And we'll be discussing the Sons of the Harpy and the Poison Locusts in more depth shortly. For now we want to focus on what might become of Hisdar. We mentioned the parallels between Barristan and Ned Stark, and as such we want to consider whether Hisdar's fate might parallel that of Robert Baratheon in some way. While the two are fairly dissimilar in most things, a look at Danny's past and potential future suggests one significant thing the two kings may share. That's right, and that would be their fate. Looking at the men in Danny's adult life, from Viserys to Drogo and even Quentin, we can see a disturbing pattern emerge. We've already discussed how rumors are rife that she's bloodthirsty. In Westeros, Ariane Martell wonders about Danny's brothers and husband's deaths, and in his windblown chapter, Quentin heard it said that, quote, her cow killed her brother to make her queen, then she killed her cow to make herself Khaleesi. Yeah, we've said before that we expect when Danny does eventually head to Westeros that this reputation will precede her. And how much more ominous will it seem if Hisdar's death makes up the full set of men in Danny's life whose deaths are, in one way or another, directly attributed to her? So whether Hisdar dies during the Battle of Marine or perhaps falls foul of one of the dragons, we don't see him surviving very far into the Winds of Winter, and so Barristan will lose yet another king under his care, and Danny will gain another death that is attributed to her ambition. And next to Hisdar, one of the most prominent of the Marinese nobles in Danny's court is Galaza Galer, the Green Grace. The Temple of Graces houses the priestesses who serve the Giscari religion, their roles denoted by the color of their robes. 
In all Giscari cities, it is the same. Blue is for healers, red is for sex workers, white is for novices, and green is for the high priestess. Galaza Galaire is a woman of over 80 years, an early supporter of Daenerys, who is a voice of peace and reason. It was the Green Grace who convinced Daenerys that she must marry Hisdar to achieve peace and end the nightly murders of the Sons of the Harpy. She also spoke in favour of reopening the fighting pits, something Danny had vehemently opposed, telling her the gods would be pleased with that course of action. At every step, Galaza Galaire used her calm and peaceful demeanour to try to convince Daenerys to seek compromise or adhere to Miranese customs. We've already discussed how, in A Dance with Dragons, with Danny absent and his dar imprisoned, Barristan sent the Green Grace as a reluctant ambassador to negotiate the release of their hostages from the Yunkai. When she returned, it was with the answer that only the deaths of the dragons would secure the lives of the hostages, and moments after her return, the assault of dead bodies flung by the trebuchets began. Galaza Galaire made every effort to convince Barristan that his Dar was innocent, that he should be freed, and that he was the only one who could secure peace. Her exhortations only served to deepen Barristan's suspicions that Hisdar was in fact the harpy and that the Green Grace knew it, as well as the identity of the poisoner. She presumably remains inside the walls of Marine early in the winds of winter, and with her apparent commitment to peace, she may not have a huge role in the battle, though if she is involved in any clandestine treachery against Danny her role could become significant with Barristan outside the city walls. Coming up shortly, we'll be attempting to untangle those mysteries of the Locusts and the Harpy's identity, and what might happen next in the Shadow War inside the city. For now, we'll continue our run-through of the supporting cast in Marine. Resnak Mo Resnak is the Giscari Seneschal of Marine. When Danny decided to stay and rule, he was raised up to the office, though it says she liked him little and trusted him less. As a member of a Miranese noble family, he was useful, though, for his knowledge and influence among the nobility. But although the House of Resnak was allegedly favorably disposed to Daenerys, when a number of Miranese ships joined the Yunkish blockade of the city, the list of their captains that Skahaz gives to Danny includes a kinsman of Resnak. Resnak is repeatedly described as slimy or oily and smelling of perfume, and his manner is unctuous. After hearing Quaith's warning to beware the perfume seneschal, Danny spends a lot of time wondering if Resnak is plotting against her, including just after she agrees to marry Hisdar. Has Resnak made common cause with Hisdar and the Green Grace and set some trap to snare me? She even briefly considers having Skehaz put into the question, ultimately deciding that would not be the best way to forestall a prophecy, if indeed Quaith's cryptic words were prophetic. After Danny flies away on Drogon and Hisdar asserts his own rule, Resnak, along with Galaza Galaire, is one of the few of Danny's counselors that he retains, needless to say, giving some weight to Danny's earlier suspicion about the trio. Barristan and Skahaz clearly don't trust the man either. When Skahaz reveals to Barristan that the Volantines are coming, 
he also draws the connection between Resnak and Hisdar. The wise masters know, so do their friends, the harpy, Resnak, Hisdar. This king will open the city gates to the Valentines when they arrive. And so when the plan to arrest Hisdar was set in motion, even as Baristan went to the royal apartments, the shavepate was to take Resnak, quote, until we could be certain of his loyalty. As Barristan escorted Hisdar from his chambers, though, a messenger from Resnak arrived with the news that the dragons had escaped, causing Barristan a moment of concern. However, it's evident from a last mention of the man in Barristan's final dance chapter that he was ultimately arrested and is being held even as Hisdar is. Now, the other main Marinese counselor is Skahaz Mokandak, the shave pate. We've already mentioned him pretty frequently. He's one of Danny's main advisors, and he's the founder and commander of the Brazen Beasts, a member of a minor Giscari house that has seen a dramatic upswing in its fortunes since swearing loyalty to Daenerys. Skahaz is a brutal and no-nonsense man, upon whose advice Barristan joins in the coup to arrest Hisdar on suspicion of poisoning the locusts at Daznak's pit. And of course, we'll be getting back to that subject shortly, including a discussion of what exactly the Shavepate's objective might be. For now, we leave the Shavepate guarding the city walls with his brazen beasts as Barristan and many more sally forth to meet the enemy in the field. Principal among those defenders who enter the field in Barristan's sample chapters are Grey Worm and his Unsullied, they would be the main combatants against the Giscari legions and, as we've said, the main objective of the vanguard of cavalry that Barristan planned to lead against the trebuchets, besides toppling the great war machines, was to give Grey Worm time to form his men into their formidable shield wall, against which the Yunkish troops could not hope to prevail. All of Danny's other commanders are also taking the field as the Winds of Winter opens, Marzalin and the Mother's Men would face off against Gylo Regan's long lances at the trebuchet known as the Ghost of Astapor, while Tal Torak and his stalwart shields would leave the city by the East Gate. Simon Stripeback and the Free Brothers would have the easiest task of defending the North Gate. The north side of the city was separated from their foemen by the width of the Skahazadan River, with the Giscari legions guarding the trebuchets Dragonbreaker and Mazdan's Fist on its north bank. These were isolated and relatively ineffective in terms of their assault, and the expectation was that the Free Brothers would face only the few ships that were in the river district. Barristan was accompanied by three of his lads in his cavalry charge, all of whom he had raised to knighthood at the end of A Dance with Dragons. The rest of his squires he reluctantly left inside Marine, deeming them unready to face live combat. Barristan would also be accompanied by a group of ferocious pit fighters with names like the Spotted Cat, Fearless Ithoki, Sanera She-Snake, Cameron of the Count, the Brindled Butcher, Togosh, Marigo, Orlos the Catamite, and Gogor the Giant, whom he hoped would cause a noisy distraction as the Unsullied formed their wall. Barristan gives this last group little chance of survival since many still don't wear armor, but as distractions go, they should certainly be effective. 
But the former pit fighter and long-time member of Danny's court, Strong Belwas, is not in evidence as the battle lines are drawn. Though he arose from his sickbed at the end of A Dance with Dragons to join the war council, he was still weak and his strength diminished from his experience with the poisoned locusts. We can only assume that he remains inside the city walls with Miss Anday, who is also not mentioned in Baristan's sample chapters. What the Winds of Winter brings for these two loyal subjects of Daenerys depends largely on whether or not there is any treachery within the walls of Marine as the battle unfolds outside, as we'll be discussing. In his final A Dance with Dragons chapter, Barristan struck a deal with Quentin Martell's two companions, their lives and a ship home to Dorne with Quentin's bones in exchange for them acting once more as go-betweens with the Tattered Prince. Now aware of exactly what motivated Tatters to ally with Quentin in the first place, Barristan is hoping to strike the same bargain again. He would release the Windblown, who had been held captive in Marine since the failed ploy with Dario and the Stormcrows, and Garrus Drinkwater and Archibald Ironwood would accompany them into the Yunkish camp. Yeah, and there they would deliver Barristan's terms, free the three hostages, Dario Naharis, Hero of the Unsullied, and the Blood Rider Jogo. Deliver them unharmed to Baristan, and he will pay the Tattered Prince's price, Pentos. Like Tyrion signing his Mountain of Bonds for the Second Sons, Baristan is making an enormous promise of a future payment in exchange for present service. Based on the fact that in Tyrion's second sample chapter, he learns that the Windblown have slain Gorzakto Eras, one of the Yunkish commanders, and turn their cloaks, we can assume that Drink and Arch were successful in their mission, that the hostages have been freed, and perhaps have taken the field along with the Dornish Knights and the Windblown on Marine's side. Now, the question of how Barristan ever hopes to deliver on this promise is perhaps hinted at when he instructs the Dornish Knights to tell the Tattered Prince that he speaks with the Queen's voice. We can assume that in addition to gold and material aid, perhaps the greatest asset Quentin Martell brought to the plan to take Pentos was a dragon or two. If Barristan was able to convince Tatters via his deputies that Danny would support him, then he would expect to have those dragons on his side. And how easily Pentos would fall in that case, though the plan may not stand up to much scrutiny by anyone who knows of Danny's background and possible loyalty to Illyrio Mopatis of Pentos, however ill-deserved the reader might find that. And speaking of the hostages, Barristan instructed Jokin and the widower of the Stormcrows to assault the trebuchet known as the Haridan. Because of the simultaneous plot for the Windblown to free the hostages, there is an expectation that their captain, Dario, might be on hand to take control of his company. If he is found, Barristan says, give him a sword and follow him. And last, but certainly not least, among our cast of supporting characters from inside the city walls are the dragons themselves. Viserion and Rhaegal have been hunting the skies above the city and the camp. While the first Barristan sample chapter takes place in the darkest hour of the night as the army readies for a dawn attack, and the second is merely a summary of a reading, we know that Barristan thinks that the day will bring a dragon dawn, and he most likely expected the battle to draw their attention. 
And indeed, in Tyrion II, which takes place after battle has commenced, the white dragon is seen feasting upon the corpses being flung into the air by the trebuchets. Though there is some concern over whether the dragons have a way to tell friend from foe, it seems like we can be pretty certain they will continue to be a factor in the battle. And that sums up the action and location of the principal counsellors and defenders of Marine. These are the people who will participate in the battle or the defence of the city walls or in one way or another play some role in what happens there as the battle plays out. As promised, in our final section we'll be considering not only the outcome of the massive Battle of Fire but also the Shadow War and its background, possible treachery and what else might be happening inside the city as the defenders all find themselves outside of the walls and the city is left in the hands of the Miranese for the first time since Danny arrived. He could still hear Hisdar urging his queen to try the honeyed locusts. Those are very tasty. You ought to try a few yourself, my love. They are rolled in spice before the honey, so they are sweet and hot at once. Yet he never touched so much as one himself. Danny's first A Dance with Dragons chapter takes place about a month after her conquest of Marine. It opens as the dead, unsullied soldier, stalwart shield, is brought before her, the first of her soldiers to be targeted by the group known as the Sons of the Harpy. While mere weeks have passed since her occupation of the city, the Sons have already established their shadow war and have now escalated from killing unarmed freedmen to targeting Danny's armed guards. Her advisor, Skehazmo Kandak, urges her to seek retribution from the slaving families of Marine, saying more will die unless the murderers are punished, and recommending that she take one man from each of the leading families after the next murder and two after the second. There will not be a third murder, he promises. But Danny prefers to offer money for information, but within a matter of days, the killings have escalated enough that in one night, six unsullied, walking after dark in pairs, and three freedmen in their homes are murdered. Danny demands gold and child hostages from all the pyramids of the leading Marinese nobles, and she pulls the unsullied back to their barracks, decreeing that the city watch will henceforth be made up of Marinese, Shafepates and freedmen in equal measure, under the command of Skahaz. In return, the Sons of the Harpy threatened to kill any Miranese who served Danny and their families as well. The new watch responds by hiding their identities behind metal masks. The brazen beasts are born. The Sons also offer fabulous wealth to anyone who succeeds in killing Danny, and so the grim shadow war continues to escalate for many weeks, while Danny searches for a way to succeed as the ruler of Marine. During that time, Hisdar Zolorak, who is a quote, famously and fabulously rich merchant of Marine's ruling class, continually presents himself to Danny to request that she reopen the fighting pits, the stock of which he had bought up after it plunged in value following the sack of the city. Also during that time, Galaza Galer began to encourage Danny to take a husband from one of Marine's noble families. 
The Green Grays claims that this is the only way to reconcile the Marinese to Danny's rule, and the candidate she suggests is Hisdar Zolorak. She says, Wed Hisdar Zolorak and make a son with him, a son whose father is the harpy, whose mother is the dragon. Danny asks Hisdar directly what help he could give her, and Hisdar's reply seems frank and to the point. I have gold and friends and influence, and the blood of old Gis flows in my veins. Though I have never wed, I have two natural children, a boy and a girl, and so I can give you heirs. I can reconcile the city to your rule and put an end to this nightly slaughter in the streets. And that was an interesting claim. And Danny asked Hisdar point blank if he was the harpy. No, he says but then agrees that he wouldn't tell the truth even if he was. He explains the economic impact of her presence in Marine and urges her to consider peace terms with Yunkai. When she questions his motives, he replies, Before you came, Marine was dying. Our rulers were old men with withered cocks and crones whose puckered cunts were dry as dust. They sat atop their pyramids, sipping apricot wine and talking of the glories of the old empire whilst the centuries slipped by and the very bricks of the city crumbled around them. Custom and caution had an iron grip upon us till you awakened us with fire and blood. A new time has come, and new things are possible. Danny remained unconvinced, but agreed that if his dark could bring ninety days and nights of peace with the sons of the harpy, she would marry him. And so Hisdar's peace was born. Ninety days later, Danny married Hisdar in the Temple of the Graces. Within days, he had also forged a peace with Yunkai, signed by Daenerys at a feast inside Mirin, the night before Hisdar's dream of reopening the fighting pits was finally to be realised. And it was on that day, as we know, that Strong Belwas was poisoned by a bowl of poisoned locusts, apparently meant for Danny, and Danny flew away on Drogon after he came to the pit, evidently attracted by the blood and noise, and ended up killing several fighters and causing a riot. Following Danny's departure, Hisdar replaced her most loyal advisors on the ruling council, retaining only Resnak the Seneschal and Galaza Galaire the Green Grace, the people, along with Hisdar, about whom the most amount of suspicion had swirled regarding their motives and ambitions. Just a handful of days later, following the Shavepate's revelations to him about the poisoned locusts, Barristan Selmy led a coup against the Miranese king, arresting him on the suspicion of having caused the poisoned confection to be presented to the queen. The night after his dar's arrests, the sons of the harpy resumed their killing, escalating to a death toll of 29 by the third night. Galaza Galaire, returning from her fruitless diplomatic visit to the Yunkish Council, begged Barristan to, quote, free the noble Hisdar Zolorak, who stopped such killings once. The Green Grace also told Barristan, Peace is the pearl beyond price. Hisdar is of Lorak. Never would he soil his hands with poison. He is innocent. But Barristan was unswayed, her certainty only casting her own self into suspicion. And so things stood inside Marine as its defenders took the field, leaving Skahazmokandak and his brazen beasts in charge of the city watch and the city walls. 
And so, before we get into speculating what might be happening inside the city during and after the Battle of Fire, let's review the leading candidates for exactly who is the Harpy and who poisoned the Locusts, since as we'll see, it's not at all clear that it's one and the same person. In story, Skahaz manages to convince Baristan that Hisdar is both the Harpy and the Poisoner. In truth, Skahaz has been trying to convince Danny that Hisdar was the Harpy for weeks, telling her after the first month of peace inside the city, the sons of the Harpy have put down their knives, but why? Because the noble Hisdar asks sweetly? He is one of them, I tell you. That's why they obey him. He may well be the Harpy. At the time, Danny expressed doubt that there was even a single individual who was the Harpy, since any captives they had questioned had denied all knowledge of such. But the swiftness with which the murders stopped after Danny agreed to the betrothal with his dar, and with which they resumed following Barristan's coup, seems to indicate otherwise. And in truth, circumstantial evidence begins to make it look very grim for Hisdar late in a dance with dragons, with Skahaz and Barristan in charge. Besides the fact that Hisdar seems able to control the sun's activities, he doesn't deny being the harpy when Barristan confronts him, nor did he convincingly deny it when Danny asked him point blank. Not to mention, on a meta level, that statement Galaza Galaire made about Danny's union with Hisdar make a son with him, a son whose father is the harpy, whose mother is a dragon, many readers cannot help but conclude that this is a sneaky nod by the author to the harpy's true identity. And then there's the timeline. The Shadow War was waged for several months until Danny agreed to marry Hisdar. Once the killings ceased for 90 days, the marriage was concluded and shortly afterwards the peace with Yunkai was signed. The poison locust made their appearance on the very next day, the implication seeming to be that, having obtained a crown and made peace with the enemy at the gate, Hisdar no longer needed Danny. In addition, it had been made abundantly clear, even before Dasnak's pit, that the region, from Karth to the Free Cities, was in fear of the destructive capabilities of the Three Dragons, Hisdar reminded Danny that Yunkai didn't trust her because of their earlier interaction in which Drogon singed a slaver's tokar. So perhaps even without the events of the pit and the death of Yurgaz, the Yunkish would have requested the dragons be dealt with, even as Marine's much more distant neighbor Karth had done. It certainly remains up for debate whether chaining two of them below the pyramid would have been considered sufficient in the long run, and ultimately, if the consensus was that their deaths was the best solution, there'd be no way for that to be achieved while Danny lived. In short, a plot to kill Danny may have been a precursor to the planned destruction of the three dragons. All of which points to Hisdar's involvement, especially since it was his piece in hand, his box at the fighting pit, and his alleged confectioner who supplied the locusts. But the counter-argument is that Skehaz, the principal person pointing the finger at Hisdar, is known to dislike him, and the Green Grace even tells Danny that there is blood between Lorak and Kandak, their two families. 
his da also seems at times to be quite genuine in his desire for peace, though that needn't rule out his involvement with the Sons, since freedom fighters trying to achieve peace through violence is certainly nothing new or original in either George's world or our own. Perhaps the most telling detail against Hisdar being the harpy, though, is that in the aftermath of Danny's disappearance, Hisdar wasn't exactly feeling secure in his new role as king. In the Queen's Guard, Barristan thinks Hisdar's Olorak sat uneasily on his new throne. It had been a thousand years since Marine last had a king, and there were some even amongst the old blood who thought they might have made a better choice than him. But if not Hisdar, then who? Candidates suggested by the fandom ranged from the Green Grace's cousin, Grasdanzo Galaire, that merchant who had sought to be compensated for the work of a group of weavers who had once been his slaves and been denied by Danny, to Resnak Moresnak, the Seneschal, to the shave paid himself. Razdanzo Galaire doesn't seem like a major enough character to be the harpy, though he may certainly have instigated the later murders of those weavers following Danny's refusal to compensate him for their work. Resnak, as much of a sycophant as he is, seems to be in general quite committed to Danny becoming Miranese and remaining to protect the city. While he comes from a noble family, it's possible that, like so many others, Danny's arrival represented a change in fortunes for the house of Resnak. Besides, when Danny considered leaving, after Zaro Zoan Daxos came to Marine and offered her 13 ships if she would leave the region and return to Westeros immediately, Resnak was among the most vocal of those urging her to stay, not a position one would expect the harpy to take. Yeah, although Quaith's warning about the perfumed Seneschal directs a lot of mistrust, both in story and without, towards Resnak, he just doesn't feel like a satisfactory candidate to be the harpy. And then there's Skahaz Mokandak, the shavebait. Skahaz is definitely amongst those who finds his fortunes rising after Danny's arrival, and there are those who think he could be capitalizing on her occupation of the city to rid himself of rivals from the leading slaving families. This doesn't actually withstand a lot of scrutiny, since the very same argument can be used against Skahaz being the harpy. His pleasure every time Danny takes steps to punish or diminish his noble rivals is obvious, and he is thirsty for noble Miranese blood, urging Danny to kill members of the nobility in retaliation for the son's murders, and later repeatedly insisting she could kill the children she ultimately takes as hostages. Like Renly urging Ned to take Cersei's children captive, and Ned refusing, Danny flat out refuses to kill children, clearly frustrating Skahaz. In addition, Skahaz is the one person who continues to insist there is a harpy. If he was the harpy, he could have simply acceded to Danny's suggestion that there was no such person and remained in the shadows. As the harpy, Skahaz would also have no interest in suspending the murders in order to cement Danny's marriage to Hisdar, supposedly one of his main political rivals. Helping Hisdar become King of Marine seems like an odd way for a harpy bent on diminishing his rivals to behave, not to mention that many of the harpy's victims are Skahaz's own men. 
Yeah, one has to envision some serious 4D chess, or Saivas if you will, in order to build the case against Gehaz, which leaves, if not Hisdar, one other candidate who fits the bill and is a major enough player that the reveal would represent a significant betrayal to Daenerys. Galaza Galer, the Green Grace. Galaza Galer is hugely influential in Marine, both due to her role as the High Priestess at the Temple of Graces and as a member of one of Marine's leading families. As a revered holy woman, she quickly became one of Danny's main local advisors, notably urging that Danny should maintain many of the local customs and, more importantly, take Hisdarzo Lorak as her husband. Yeah, assuming Hisdar is a mere puppet for the actual harpy, as the person who first suggested the match between him and Danny, the Green Grace is, by default, the main candidate for the harpy, given how closely the activity of the Sons of the Harpy are tied to that union. In addition, in several meetings with Danny and Baristan, she displays a keen knowledge of and interest in the activities of the Sons of the Harpy. And there's also the fact that, although the sons promise brutal retaliation for any Miranese and their families who work with Danny, the Green Grace never expresses any concern for her own or her family's safety. And speaking of her family, if Galaza Galer is the harpy, it lends even more weight to the idea that her cousin Grazdan used his influence with the leader of the sons to instigate the murders of those weavers whom he had once owned as vengeance after Danny refused to grant him compensation for them having learned their craft in his household. And then there's the influence of her office of high priestess. After the unsullied warrior Stalwart Shield was murdered, Danny asked the healers at the Temple of the Graces to send her word about anyone who came to them seeking treatment for injuries that may have been caused by a sword. Nothing ever came of that avenue of inquiry, not damning in itself, but potentially a hint that the priestesses are not as compliant as Danny believes them to be based on the Green Grace's role as her advisor. Later, when Quentin Martell lies dying in Danny's chambers, Barristan thinks how the Blue Graces, Marine's healers, never answered, though he sent to them requesting help twice. While they could simply be overwhelmed by the needs of a population beset by the Pale Mare, it is curious that a request from literally the highest level of Marine should be so thoroughly ignored. And finally, and possibly most revealing, is the fact that a harpy is a female creature. While women don't seem to be very highly valued as leaders in Miranese society, the symbol of the harpy is revered throughout Slaver's Bay as a reminder of their long and storied history, something that Green Grace tells Danny more than once is very important to her people. In the shadow war of attrition meant to drive Danny from Marine, the harpy seems to be literally, as well as symbolically, significant and the only female authority figure we are ever introduced to in Marine is Galaza Galer. But detractors of the theory will point out that the Green Grace was extremely convincing in her devotion to peace and that Danny had finally agreed to the reopening of the fighting pits and Marine was on the verge of peace when the poisoned locusts found their way into Hisdar's box at Dasnak's pit. 
And so, as damning as the timeline seems to be for the harpy, it's worth considering if perhaps there's more going on in Marine than a simple insurgency by a conquered people. Is it possible, as some have suggested, including Adam Feldman in the Miranese Blot, that the peace was real and the poisoned locusts were not what they appear to be? We mentioned earlier that Skahasmo Kandak is one of those few Miranese whose fortunes rose with Danny's arrival. He's known to loathe Hisdar and is the main advisor constantly warning Danny about the harpy and casting suspicion on Hisdar. He's also particularly bloodthirsty when it comes to advising vengeance on the Miranese nobility, especially the child hostages whom Danny refuses to harm. If, as this Gahaz is the harpy theory suggests, the shave paid is a ruthless minor noble bent on enriching himself at the expense of people who once thought themselves superior to him, then that might suggest an alternate possibility for the mystery of the poison locusts. While, as we said, we wouldn't go as far as to suggest the shave paid is the harpy, if Marine really was on the verge of peace, with the hated Hisdar at Danny's side and surely expanding his influence day by day, then Skahaz, the little finger of Marine, would have to act quickly to ensure that the city remained in chaos and that he remained relevant and necessary to Daenerys. And a bowl of poisoned locusts would certainly be one way to sow chaos and suspicion amidst the triumph of Hisdar's fragile peace. Of note, when the Shafepate brought the story of the locust to Baristan, he told him about a certain confectioner, known to supply Hisdar with sweets, who had provided the treats on that fateful day. Under questioning, Skahaz claimed, the confectioner confessed that the sons of the harpy had taken his daughter and sworn she would be returned unharmed when Danny was dead. Even though the unexpected arrival of Drogon saved Danny through no fault of the confectioners, Skehaz told Baristan that the sons returned the man's daughter in nine pieces. Such brutality by the sons is certainly nothing new. The long, dark weeks of the Shadow War had seen many similar murders, and Barristan recalls that Hisdar had urged the sweetened locusts on Danny, though the irrepressible Belwas managed to eat them all before the dragon arrived. And so Skahaz manages to convince Barristan that Hisdar is not only the harpy, but the poisoner as well. While Barristan agrees to take Hisdar into custody, reasoning that Danny had never ordered him to either protect or obey her spouse, he draws the line at execution, demanding that Hisdar merely be held as a prisoner until some proof of his guilt or innocence can be found. Barristan proves to be distressingly easy to convince of Hisdar's guilt in both matters, and in spite of the fact that he insists upon questioning the confectioner alone, we can't be certain if that interview ever took place. The cat's ball is never mentioned again, not in Barristan's thoughts as he wrestles with the implications of planning a coup, and not when Barristan ultimately confronts and arrests Hisdar. While it's noteworthy that Hisdar never explicitly denies being either the harpy or the poisoner, his motives remain somewhat cloudy. Skahaz claims that the peace, though initially genuine, was dead on arrival following Daznak's pit. He further implicates Hisdar as being complicit in the alliance with Volantis, telling Barristan, this king will open the city gates to the Valentines when they arrive. 
All those Daenerys freed will be enslaved again. Even some who were never slaves will be fitted for chains. You may end your days in a fighting pit, old man. But if the peace was genuine until Dasnak's pit, Skahaz never offers Baristan a compelling reason why Hisdar would have wanted to kill Danny. We've speculated that it had something to do with the dragons, perhaps a need to get Danny out of sight to clear the way for their destruction, but Skahaz never suggests this. Instead, he offers a witness who, even if he was interviewed by Baristan, would only be able to make a vague claim about the Sons of the Harpy threatening him and the patently ridiculous claim that Hisdar was in league with Volantis and would enslave all of Meereen's freedmen and more, perhaps even Barristan himself. And so the accusation is inherently unprovable, and in order to disguise that fact, the shave pate resorts to scare tactics and peer pressure, which is why many people have reached the conclusion that Skahaz Mokandak himself was the poisoner, and that many of the motives which are ascribed to him in the harpy theories can actually be applied here. Yeah, the idea goes that the peace didn't suit him any more than Danny's marriage to Hisdar did. Seeking his own advancement and the destruction of the Miranese nobility whom he holds in the highest disregard, he orchestrated the poisoning by suborning the confectioner in the guise of a member of the Sons of the Harpy and then carefully building up a story of blame for Baristan in order to destabilise his Dar's rule. But wait, the poisoner could never have predicted that Danny wouldn't eat the locusts, nor that she would be swept away to safety by her dragon. So did Skahaz actually intend to poison Danny? Was his star actually the target? How could he be sure who would even eat the poison sweets? As the actual outcome proved, there's no way they could be restricted to one or even two people, given the way they were presented. And we suggest that the flip side of that coin is that we also don't know what would have happened if Drogon had not shown up. Perhaps Skahaz had the confectioner in his pocket all along and would have appeared in Hisdar's box to seize the evidence and point a finger of blame at the harpy. What we do know is that one person, and one person only, is directing the narrative around the issue. In spite of Belwas lying at death's door for several days in the Temple of Graces, no one but Skahaz seems to know or care about the poison, and Barristan never thinks to question it. Well, since it's stated that there's bad blood between Skahaz and Hisdar, or at least between their families, the moves being made in the city, particularly now in Danny's absence, are almost certainly defined by that fact. If, as many readers think, Skahaz is the poisoner, it may well be that he genuinely believes that Hisdar is the harpy and sought to remove what he saw as a threat to the queen in a way that would also be beneficial to him. Not for nothing is the storyline of Marine called a knot, and for now, we can only point the finger of suspicion at likely candidates and wait until the Winds of Winter brings us a reveal. And how that reveal, and many other things inside of Marine might play out is exactly what we want to talk about next. When Barristan took the battle to the Yunkish besiegers, he left Skahaz and his brazen beasts in charge of the city watch and the wall, an interesting choice in light of the Shavepate's aggressive stance on the harpy 
and his da. When Zarozoan Doxos visited Danny early in A Dance with Dragons, he brought her gifts and much advice. When Danny boasted that she would raise their yellow city to the ground if the Yunkish dared attack her, an amused Zaro told her, And whilst you are raising Yunkai, my sweet, Marine shall rise behind you. Skehaz spent the better part of A Dance with Dragons trying to convince Danny to take vengeance on the noble families of Marine for their presumed involvement in the murders and atrocities committed by the Sons of the Harpy. Kill enough of them, he reasoned, and the families might be cowed into submission. Kill the child hostages and the murders would stop forever, he insisted. First Danny and then Baristan refused this course of action. For both of them, but Baristan especially, the thematic resonance of a conquering ruler killing children hit just too close to home. Neither has forgotten Rhaegar's children, and so the cupbearers lived. But with both Danny and Baristan gone from the city, we wonder how Skahaz will react when the sons of the harpy take to the streets. And we think there's little chance that there won't be some sort of attempt as the battle rages outside the walls. The opportunity to do so won't come again. All of Danny's freedmen, the pit fighters, the cell swords, the unsullied, and the knights outside the walls and the brazen beasts upon the walls will leave the Great Pyramid lightly, if at all, guarded. In fact, if Skahaz is indeed the poisoner for the reasons we suggested, it could be that he might intentionally pull back his men to bait the sons into making an attempt to free Hisdar. Such a bold move by the sons could play right into the Shavepate's hands, giving him the excuse he'd need to finally wreak bloody justice upon the noble families of Marine. Amidst the chaos of a battle raging outside and an insurrection inside, any number of things could happen. But amongst the most likely, we think, are the deaths of Hisdar and the cupbearers. Both of those possibilities would be in keeping with the thematic arcs of our POV characters. First of all, Hisdar must die so that Danny is free when she comes to Westeros, but also so that her reputation can continue to be blackened. Like Rohan Weber, the Sworn Sword's Red Widow, rumored to be the vicious poisoner of four husbands, Danny will be looked upon as a killer of men. With Viserys, Drogo, Quentin, and potentially Hisdar all dead, it's not hard to imagine the rumors that will follow her westwards. The death of Hisdar would also be extremely impactful for Baristan. In his Queensguard chapter, he thinks about the deaths of kings. It was his failures that haunted him at night, though. Jaehaerys, Ares, Robert, three dead kings, Rhaegar, who would have been a finer king than any of them. Princess Elia and the children, Aegon, just a babe, Rhaenys with her kitten, dead, every one. Yet he still lived, who had sworn to protect them. While Baristan carefully reasons that he had sworn no oaths of fealty, nor been commanded to protect Hisdar, nonetheless another dead king would likely hurt. But nowhere near as much as dead children. One thing Barristan refuses to contemplate is the murder of children. In The Kingbreaker, he tells Gehaz... Prince Rhaegar had two children. Rhaenys was a little girl, Aegon a babe in arms. 
When Tywin Lannister took King's Landing, his men killed both of them. He served the bloody bodies up in crimson cloaks, a gift for the new king. I will not suffer the murder of children. Accept that, or I'll have no part of this. And he also wonders how Robert reacted when he saw those dead bodies. It says, did he smile? Barristan Selmy had been badly wounded on the trident, so he had been spared the sight of Lord Tywin's gift, but oft he wondered. If I had seen him smile over the red ruins of Rhaegar's children, no army on this earth could have stopped me from killing him. We know from Ned, Barristan's parallel in King's Landing, that Robert simply turned away. But we can imagine how this question has haunted Barristan for 17 years. The implications for Barristan, if Skahaz, his partner in regime change, murders Hisdar and or the cupbearers, are huge. We will have watched Barristan go from legendary knight to soiled and conflicted man in a matter of months. We've noted the similarities between his arc and Ned's, but by playing the role that he has in Marine, Barristan is also being set up to suddenly resemble Jamie Lannister as well. Imagine the reckoning if Barristan the Bold finds himself faced with conflicts similar to those that he's held Sir Jamie in such contempt for, for all these years. Another thing we have to consider is what might be happening with Missandei and Strong Belwas, neither of whom are mentioned in Barristan's sample chapter, and both of whom we expect were left inside the Great Pyramid. Since it's very difficult to imagine Barristan leaving Missandei unprotected in his absence, we wonder if they might be together, and while we hope neither comes to any harm, it's certainly a possibility if violence breaks out in the city. Missandei's brother Mossador died in a dance with dragons, slaughtered by the Sons of the Harpy. If they were to target Missandei herself, surely nothing would save the city of Marine from Danny's wrath. But we also wonder if she's been left inside on purpose, from a meta level, to be our reporter on the scene. And indeed, we think there's a chance that Missandei could be the one who learns that Skahaz was the poisoner. In discussing Hisdar's guilt with the shavepate, Barristan thinks that if he finds incontrovertible proof that Hisdar conspired to kill Daenerys, he would kill him himself. Surely the same promise must apply if Barristan were to discover that his ally Skahaz was in fact the guilty party. And so the aftermath of the battle might end up being worse than the battle itself for Marine. With all the deaths that could occur inside the walls, it's not hard to imagine Marine being left a smoking wreck when Danny eventually heads west with her new entourage. How that might play out will be the subject of another episode, but we do think that the final resolution of the Harpy and Marine's fate will be left for Danny. In the meantime, although the battle has been left suspended on page for so much time, we know that the tide has already turned against the Yunkai. The arrival of the Volantines is unlikely to work in their favor, with Makoro already in Marine and likely set to begin preaching the word of Bonero to the slaves and former slaves of the region. 
the Valentine army, noted to be made up of slaves, and Valentine slaves noted to be in thrall to Bonero and his red god, is far more likely to join the fight against the Yonkish than with them. So the battle most likely ends with the total destruction of the Yonkish army, only to be followed by whatever chaos is happening inside the city. The deaths of Hisdas, Gehaz, and possibly other important Miranese figures like Reznak Mo Reznak could figure prominently. The Pale Mare is unlikely to be finished riding through the region, and of course the dragons will remain a wild card. Barristan noted that they hadn't been attacking humans since they met resistance in the pyramids they took over as nests, but will the battle have changed that? Yeah, with the trebuchets tossing man-sized meals into the air for them, it's possible that their tastes may have evolved. And of course, we have yet to see what effect the Hellhorn has on them as well. And speaking of the Hellhorn, the aftermath of the battle, we'll also see a number of reunions. Barristan with Jorah, Tyrion, and Brown Ben Plum. And introductions, Barristan and the rest to Victarion and Makaro. And perhaps even another arrival, as the conclusion of the battle is probably at least two months after Archmaester Marwyn's abrupt departure from Old Town en route to Slaver's Bay. The potential for a number of fascinating intersections continues to be quite high in this setting. And all of this, of course, will continue to play out in Danny's absence since, as far as her final chapter of A Dance with Dragons indicates, she's still wandering in the Dothraki Sea for many days after the battle takes place. In Danny's return to the Dothraki Sea and what happens next will be the subject of our next and final Primer episode. For now, we hope you've enjoyed our look at Marine and are refreshed in the characters and themes poised to make a large impact in the upcoming novel. One thing we're certain of is that Danny will one day return to Marine, but what exactly she will be returning to is another matter entirely, and we hope this analysis has shed some light on the possibilities going forward in the Battle of Fire and its aftermath. Thanks so much for joining us today as we delved into this Miranese Knot. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back soon with the final installment in our Winds of Winter Primer series, where we'll look at what's been going on with Daenerys in the Dothraki Sea, and where her Winds of Winter arc might be taking her. We'll also be bringing you another installment in our Dance of the Dragons series with History of Westeros, so stay tuned for that. But now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us this knot to untangle, and thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Our heartfelt thanks to AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ali, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Arshia, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Clay, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Crimson Kate, Dag Blah Blah, Dan S., Dimitri B., Dennis, Eric, Esme, Emily of the Erie, 
Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Ingveld, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion the White Storm, Julie Beth Tarth, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Brash Candy, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemmy B, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, and Matt L. And thanks as well to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Melinda, Maester Mary, Michael M, Mitchell, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Scott Greenseer, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Scott, Sherry, Sheila, Cern, Spentrails, That Shiny Bastard, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmont, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, Woodside for Life, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks so much again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.